to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, music and food. I am Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Winnie Lee. Winnie is an author and activist. Her latest novel, Complicit, draws from her earlier career in the film industry. It was a New York Times editor's choice, shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award, and listed among the best novels of 2022 by Grazia, Glamour and the Irish Times. Her debut dark chapter, won the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize, was nominated for an Edgar Award and translated into 10 languages. She is currently adapting it for the screen. Driven by her own experience of rape, Winnie founded Clear Lines, the UK's first festival addressing sexual assault and the consent through the arts, and began her PhD research at the London School of Economics. Winnie has given over 200 public talks and has appeared on the BBC, Sky News, Channel 4, The Guardian, The Mail on Sunday, The Irish Times, BBC Women's Hour and TEDx London, among other media platforms. She holds an honorary doctorate of law from the National University of Ireland in recognition of her writing and activism. Thank you so much, Winnie, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Okay, so this is going to be, uh, I'm assuming that um, language is not an issue. <laughs> so there's uh, <laughs> not an English speaker here. Um, so first one's Maya Angelou. Um, who is quite well known for Americans. Um, she wrote a book called I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which was, I think that was required reading for me when I was a teenager in high school. Um, and she's she's a fantastic writer, right? And so she's written memoirs, she's written fiction, poetry, song. Um, she was a, a Black American um, woman uh, artist, um, very active kind of uh, cultural life, um, who uh, was born into poverty in the American South, um, and then despite all of that, and she suffered quite a lot of trauma early on in her life, um, she was sexually abused, she was a teenage mother, um, and then she went mute for a year after her abuse, um, and then basically a year later decided to start, she found her voice in a literal way, um, so she's somebody who's been through a lot of trauma early on in her life, and despite all that, managed to write incredible you know literature in some ways um so she's hugely inspiring in a lot of ways um I think when I read her book when I was quite young that was long before my own kind of experiences um with sexual trauma but uh there's just it's it's an incredibly funny book and also in, incredibly dark in some of the things that she experiences so I think as a writer she just encompasses um all the different uh kind of I guess in some ways intersectional experiences that people can have coming from their social position, the trauma they're, they're, that's visited upon them in life, and then also is sort of becomes sort of a triumph of the human spirit in terms of what people are able to accomplish um, and how they're able to reach other people through their art. So that's Maya Angelou. So she's the first one. Um, and then uh, Mary Shelley, mm. author of Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm a writer. So for me, it's fascinating to me that this young woman wrote Frankenstein which is seen as being kind of one of the 
you know, the, the probably the first ever science fiction novel and is a book that has spawned so many films and spoofs and has create had created so much kind of a cultural imagination came from this young woman who then actually never wrote that much more because she was sort of overshadowed at the time by her her husband Percy Bysshe Shelley whose career whose literary career she very much kind of fostered in a lot of ways so I thought she'd be quite interesting because you know she's the daughter of a quite you know intellectual woman herself um and then despite her obvious gifts she also kind of devoted so much of her own life um to her husband's work and to kind of following him around in some ways um so I thought that would be she'd be quite interesting to speak to have you heard of Mary Maya Angelou at all I have heard yes uh, Maya Angelou is is quite famous in the UK as well um and Mary Shelley is obviously very kind of um an icon in English literature um so um and I remember yeah reading Frankenstein yeah as a younger I think as a child and realizing that it was written by a woman (laughs) and by a young woman as well a teenager and and Mm. thinking how fantastic that was yeah yeah and so it's almost kind of sad obviously you know that in some ways that's a huge literary triumph but it's that she was able to write something that at such a young age that kind of shows the promise of her whole literary career and then you know subsequently that didn't quite happen in the same way largely maybe because of her marriage who knows but um but yeah so in some ways it's it's very inspiring that she's able to create something so young but then also a little bit sad that she wasn't able to afterwards um because I think when we talk about feminism and you know the work that we're able to create as artists or you know as leaders or what have you inventors scientists um I guess one of the large questions about feminism is how much of our work or ability to work or create work um is impacted by our life experiences specifically you know becoming a mother or marrying a man who and being expected to to kind of support his career um so yeah I think those are the two of them are quite interesting characters in terms of how they've you know Maya Angelou obviously early on in her life she experienced great trauma but then was able to produce quite a lot afterwards but I think both of their lifetimes are quite interesting um, in that sense definitely and how about your third guest okay so my third guest most likely didn't speak English um, so <laughs> she lived from like the late 18th century to the middle of the 19th century and I you know I kind of wanted somebody I obviously wanted sort of like an intersectional um kind of panel or dinner party um but then somebody from like a very very different kind of obviously I think Mary Shelley and my actually very different life experiences anyway but um just I wanted somebody from like a completely different culture or non-western culture so um there's a Chinese female pirate um whose name was Ching Shi or Zheng Yi Shao. There's different, she's got two different names. Um, so she lived from like the late in 17th century to the mid 19th century. And she was, ended up becoming one of the most formidable pirates like in the world at the time, right? Um, which is strange because obviously piracy, you know, or when we think of pirates and, and there is kind of this whole other subgenre of female pirates out there, um, which we see in movies. Um, but you know, there were actual female pirates. Um, and so she started off and she probably, you know, was most people think she was possibly a sex worker earlier on in her life. She was married at the, in, when she was like in 26, she was married to a formidable male pirate who people say, and again, it's difficult because like I haven't done a huge amount of reading about her, but he was impressed by her business skills. So he wanted to marry her <laughs> um, because she would be able to help him ex- like kind of expand his empire as a pirate. 
So they married, he dies, leaving her in a pretty vulnerable position because now she's, you know, the, the, her husband, who was a very you know, powerful man, is now dead. Um, but then she ends up becoming, like, essentially taking over his pirate empire. Um, he had also adopted, you know, they didn't, like, kind of a, a son, but an adult son. And, and I guess this was a practice back in the time where you don't, you know, it's obviously some kids might be adopted as children, but here was, uh, I guess, sort of a protege, a young male protege that he adopted. Um, and so she effectively ended up kind of partnering with him. They did end up having kind of a personal relationship later on, and she bore him a son, but she was a bit older than him. Um, but then they were together, they were still able to kind of establish this pirate empire which was, you know, it kind of challenged the Chinese empire, the emperor at the time. Um, and eventually, you know, instead of, you know, when we think of kind of male heroes of, or, you know, historical figures who are often associated with fighting in some ways, like they might kind of die in a blaze of glory defending their empire. But, you know, effectively, since they were pirates, they were like chased by Chinese authorities. Um, and, uh, you know, she ended up just sort of like giving it all up and she's like, yeah, okay, I'm done with being a pirate. And then she like went and lived a very different life, you know, and lived to a long age, you know? So I thought that's a pretty interesting story, A, in terms of her rise, um, to power and how she's able to kind of, you know, maintain her power, but then her decision to just be like, you know what, like, I'm not, I'm not going to die in a blaze of glory, you know, kind of defending my pirate empire. Um, so Yeah. I thought she's her story was pretty interesting. Mm, that's a fantastic story. How, how do you think that those three women would kind of get on? I don't think they would get on. <laughs> so it actually might not be like the most pleasant dinner party. I mean, I don't know. Like, she, um, you know, in some ways, out of all of them, Mary Shelley probably led the most pampered life, right? She obviously, you know, came from sort of well-off circumstances where I got the sets of Maya Angelou and and Zheng Yi Sao, you know, were born into poverty, had much less kind of privilege. Um, so, you know, and somebody, anybody who becomes like the leader of a pirate empire probably doesn't embrace a huge amount of compassion. Um, I'm just guessing it's a difficult, you know, sphere um, to kind of establish power in. So, um, you know, I think Mary Shelley, some of her writing was kind of looking at not so much female leadership, but talking about kind of feminine values of compassion. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they might have not really agree on a lot of things. <laughs> um, you know, and Maya Angelou, again, likewise, I don't associate her as being of a particularly like military character. So, you know, um, but then the question is, Zheng Yi Sao, which, you know, obviously she was forced to kind of take on this military character just to maintain her, her power in some ways, but then she also gave it up. Um, so in some ways, I don't think they would necessarily agree or see eye to eye in time in terms of um, their values. But, you know, the, I think there could also be an interesting conversation there about, you know, power and how it's achieved and, you know, which Zheng Yi Sao kind of embodies in some ways if you're a woman, but then Maya Angelou and Mary Shelley are artists. So mm -hmm. for them, you know, their sense of kind of accomplishment, I guess, came from from creating, from writing, um, but that also was probably never an option for Zhang Yi Sao. Um, so, so in some ways, they're kind of stories of survival, I suppose. Um, certainly for Maya Angelou and, and Zhang Yi Sao. Mm. And what are the three tunes that are going to be on repeat um, all evening through this dinner party? Uh, so the tunes are very eclectic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Tracy Chapman, baby, can I hold you tonight? Which I, you know, one of my favorite tracks, and she's got an amazing voice. Um, 
and kind of the the rawness and sort of the masculinity of her voice is I think incredible in some ways um say this as a woman with a masculine voice um and yet you know she's she's Tracy Chapman's an incredible um, performer and, and singer um and then I wanted I initially I wanted this all to be kind of female composers but there's this Mozart duet from the marriage of Figaro um I think if I, my Italian's anything decent, Sularia che suave Zefiretto. My Italian's not decent, obviously. Yes, that was no, that was pretty good, I think. <laughs> um, so that is, um, you would have heard it before. If uh, people probably would have heard it before, anybody who's seen the Shawshank Redemption would have heard because that's that's the scene where you know the Tim Robbins character decides to play this track over the prison radio and all the pris male prisoners kind of relax and enjoy the sunshine and listen to this this beautiful track um and Morgan Freeman says like I have no idea what those Italian women were singing about but <laughs> I mean it um it's interesting because it's an incredibly beautiful track and it's two sopranos singing um so it's you know if you don't know the story of the marriage of, of the marriage of Figaro you can certainly appreciate the beauty of the music um the story itself is pretty interesting because the marriage of Figaro you know it entirely takes place within this kind of aristocratic household and it's it's like servants and the masters and the mistress of the household um so in and the master is um you know adulterous so in this scene where the two women are singing it's essentially a mistress and her female servant are conspiring to write a letter to trick the master into kind of an adulterous tryst so the mistress can like catch him out effectively right so um so it's kind of this like female intrigue like women working together as they're writing this letter but it's also incredibly beautiful music um so i thought um even though it's a it's a male composer um it, it you know in some ways it's such a showcase for incredible female singing and, mm. and also the story behind it's quite interesting i mean i love the um, I'm a classical music nerd, so anytime someone, okay. anyone, anytime someone chooses a piece of classical music, I'm a big fan. And I saw the Marriage of Figaro recently, and that's a beautiful, beautiful duet. So I, I think it would um, go well. <laughs> to dinner yeah, and I think like no matter what culture you're from, because I, you know, Zhengyi sound that she's ever heard. Well, she's probably never heard any of this music before. <laughs> you know, I'm always kind of curious to see how she would react to that and if she mm. would find it beautiful or not. Um, so there's definitely something about kind of what we're associated or you know what what our cultural tastes are which obviously are formed by how we grow up and the cultures we live in but um yeah so that okay well I'm glad you appreciate that um <laughs> and then the third one I couldn't I couldn't actually find a track I basically wanted to find a track that showcases a female drummer right and because again drumming especially in kind of contemporary music is it's you know or ever um, it's not associated as being like a female um kind of instrumental pursuit in a lot of ways right it's like the, the drummer is traditionally like this like man right like animal and the muppets um so but like there's a lot of amazing female drummers out there um so i wanted to choose something that karen carpenter had done because karen carpenter is obviously well known for her voice but she was an incredible drummer um and then again, it's a bit sad because, you know, she said that that was, you know, she picked up a, a pair of drumsticks and it just everything came out naturally. And that's where she felt most at home was drumming. But, you know, in contemporary society, certainly if you're trying to go commercial, like, the, you know, a female singer is much more marketable than a female drummer. So she was essentially kind of compelled to give up the drumming. 
which is sad, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to find a try. So if you like Google her, there's like different YouTube videos of like a young Karen Carpenter like killing it on the drums, <laughs> and you're like, oh, how come we never saw this? You know. Um, so I kind of want to find a track where it's, and I haven't actually found like the name of the right track. Um, but if you have a look, Karen Carpenter was an incredible drummer, and you know, and again, it's really sad she died at an incredibly young age. Um, there's some element of coercion or abuse, or certainly her her brother was quite controlling in their careers in her career um so that again it's an example of kind of female talent that gets constrained and ultimately sort of destroyed in some ways by um by male power mm-hmm. um so yeah almost on one hand it would kind of showcase her drama her talent and kind of challenge stereotypes about what female musicians do but then also sort of a story that's a bit sad in its own way mm, amazing so your guests are all sitting around the table um music's playing maybe we're on the Tracy Chapman maybe the Mozart duet what are you serving for your starter and are you cooking oh no I'm not cooking Jesus (laughs) (laughs) oh I didn't know that was an option I would be cooking yeah I mean regardless I'm not cooking I mean I do I do like to cook sort of but I I do it very very rarely um so yeah no if it's a dinner party yeah no um so the, I, I am American, as you can tell. So I'm going for kind of actually really basic, that what would, might be called basic uh, kind of food choices. Um, so one is nachos, right? I was thinking like French onion soup, but for the starters, like there's something, A, nachos are amazing. They're probably not the healthiest, but you know, there's just, there's a kind of sharing element to nachos because there's an entire dish of nachos put in front of you and um you know, like some of them have salsa on it and some have cheese and some have less cheese and like some have jalapenos. So there's kind of like everybody at the dinner party has to sort of dive in and eat the nachos. So I kind of like how that's um, more of a communal eating experience than everybody getting their own starter. Plus I like nachos, but they have to be well done. Um, So that's the starter. And then the main is, uh, again, I thought about it, but then I, I'm like pad thai. Like I get, again, the whole thing is eclectic, right? The entire dinner party is eclectic. So mm-hmm. we're going from nachos to so Tex-Mex food to, to Thai food or Westernized <laughs> Thai food. Um, so pad thai, um, which is also delightful, I find. <laughs> um, so, and I'm pretty sure Mary Shelley's never eaten any of these. Um, so it's interesting to see her reaction. <laughs> um and then for the dessert also basic um cheesecake um because again I was like oh should I do creme brulee I... but like again I grew up and uh I grew up in New Jersey and so like the New York cheesecake is this kind of iconic thing right <laughs> um, I don't know if you've had New York cheesecake before but... I have I have I have I actually have family in New Jersey so um yeah okay so uh yeah cheesecake New York cheesecake is is very delightful and not healthy but if you're just gonna I mean this is like a once in a lifetime dinner party so um yeah and I'd kind of be curious to see how they react to the cheesecake as well because mm-hmm. you know it's culturally obviously something that didn't come into existence until quite recently <laughs> so yeah that's a delicious menu and once the food has kind of been eaten where's the dinner party leading is it um chatting into the night are you going out dancing what's kind of happening oh I have no idea I mean I I think it would be fun if there was some dancing involved I just don't know if I don't know I don't know what Mary Shelley and and Jingy's house kind of reaction to dancing is I I think think they'd be up for it I I think they'd be up for it to be honest I think okay (laughs) yeah I mean I think we probably need like a lot of a fair amount of alcohol at the dinner party to loosen people (laughs) up as well but you never know um 
I think for me, like the conversation would be really interesting. And then just to have, you know, three women from quite different cultures with sort of quite different life experiences um, and accomplishments in one space would be the main thing. Um, and then we just kind of have to go from there. You know, they might hate, they might hate it and just want to go home. But like, <laughs> I kind of think it'd be interesting enough that it would move on to dancing somehow. <laughs> Do you feel that um, these guests would relate to your novel? complicit and your writing um yeah I'd like to think so yeah because I guess I mean so much of my own work as you can tell from kind of what I was describing in the dinner party you know it's, uh, it's so much of my own work is kind of concerned with or you know issues of of how our potential as women is compromised by having to live in a world where generally we don't hold as much power in whatever kind of sphere or industry we're working in, um, unless we're talking about the domestic sphere. Um, but, you know, none of these three women strike me. And maybe they were great in the domestic sphere. I don't, I don't, I doubt it for sure you said, but, you know, I don't know. But, um, you know, obviously they're well known and people become well known for their accomplishments in, in the public sphere, which is kind of sad in and of its own, in its own way, because women, if they're if we're primarily raising the women the, the, the children then obviously we have a massive influence in terms of how the human race is shaped but that's often not recognized so i think um most of my work is about kind of what we do in the public sphere and particularly kind of our our potential intellectually and artistically culturally um and how that um isn't always realized um because we live work in industries that are male dominated um so yeah, I mean, I think with Jingyi Xiao, she was working in a very male-dominated industry and somehow was able to retain power, but that's because she was already kind of, she came on board as, you know, the consort or the, or the wife of a very powerful male leader. And that's something we often see in politics, right? Um, but that's not really off. I mean, it is potentially an option for women who are trying to achieve influence in any sphere. But again, that's the whole issue is like, oh, we have to be associated with a powerful man to have any influence to begin with. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, Mary Shelley, certainly I'd like to think that she, you know, my work, my book Complicit is set in the film industry. Um, and, you know, th that's a creative industry and as a writer herself and as somebody who's surrounded by writers, she worked in the creative industry. So I think she probably quite, even though despite her talent, you know, somebody who wrote Frankenstein at such a young age, I think she probably struggled to see her talent be recognized. Um, and so much, it seemed like so much of her own effort was then given over to supporting her own husband's um, career that I think she would empathize with that. And then Maya Angelou is just, um, you know, that's just an incredible story. You know, as a survivor myself of sexual violence, I'd like to think that she understands the impact on someone's life um, mm -hmm. and so understands the role that the arts can play in, you know, helping us deal with, the impact of that the legacy of that violence but also kind of crafting a path towards a recovery and crafting work that can hopefully kind of help other women as well around that issue so yeah I'd, I'd like to think they could all sort of relate to the work I do mm. as a feminist what role do you think that fiction can play in the work of um activists and other change makers who want to address kind of social justice issues, what role can fiction and literature play? Oh, they play huge roles. I mean, because I think, you know, either you're writing fiction, or you're writing nonfiction, basically. Um, you're, either, you're writing something which has to be truthful to fact, 
Mm -hmm. um, which is what nonfiction is supposed to be, um, or you're writing something which where you don't have to be truthful to fact, but you can still try to be achieving an emotional truth, which is when fiction really works. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think for me, I prefer writing fiction, even though I'm perfectly happy to write nonfiction. But for me, you know, writing fiction is, um, you know, it's more creatively enjoyable and more creatively challenging for me. But it also just gives you much more mastery over how you're going to portray uh, social injustice and how you're going to kind of really discover the emotional truth behind it and in a way that allows your readers to be on board and to be on that journey as well. Um, so with fiction, obviously, you can create characters that experience certain kinds of social injustice, which exist in the real world, but you can have different outcomes for them. Um, you know, you can have uh, different the interplay of different kinds of characters that still showcase, you know, the lived experience of these kinds of um these kinds of social injustices but also you don't have that same ethical yeah there's still ethics involved in fiction but you if i was if one was running non-fiction there's obviously is there an eth a lot of ethical responsibility in terms of how you portray real life people uh with fiction you don't have that kind of responsibility so you do have a certain kind of freedom um in terms of how you portray things but you there is you still have to be quite responsible in the way that you write fiction as well mm. your um phd research explores how um, social, economic, cultural capital can affect which survivor voices are heard and which yeah. aren't in the public sphere. Yeah. How did this theme kind of come up in Complicit? Um, well, Complicit is a, you know, it's very much kind of a hashtag Me Too story which emerged right after the Weinstein allegation. So I used to work in the film industry. Um, so as a young woman in my 20s, I was working in film. And that was the kind of career I wanted to have. Um, I was kind of, I, I was, you know, had a female boss. And so I wanted to kind of sort of have a career like hers and, you know, be a producer. Um, and then obviously my own assault happened um, when I was 29. It didn't take place in the context of the film industry, but it was a stranger rape. And that's what my first novel, Dark Chapter, is about. But it did kind of effectively end my career as a producer. Um, so I, um, sorry, what was the initial question? I was, I was like working towards the <laughs> um, Just about how your PhD research, how it kind of, um, how the theme is, is uh, appears in your novel, Complicit. Yeah, okay. So, so that's kind of the background to my, my own kind of personal introduction to the experience of sexual violence. And then, Dark Chapter came out in 2017 and the Weinstein allegations came out like a few months later. Um, and so I, by that point, I was no longer working in the film industry, but I, you know, in the wake of all that, I'd met Harvey Weinstein, right? And I'd, I'd certainly, as a young woman working in film, met a bunch of like sleazy older men, right? Um, so, you know, and I'm sure you meet sleazy older men in other industries as well. So I was just kind of reminded of the kind of inequality that exists if you're a young woman working in an industry, you know, wanting to prove your worth and your talent and have this kind of shining career, but you're always up against these obstacles where you're being judged by your appearance, you're being judged by your youth, and you're not given the kinds of opportunities that maybe men your age are given, um, or that you're also kind of in sort of unsafe workspaces where powerful older men who are your bosses or carry much more professional power um are 
perving on you <laughs> or, you know, trying to put you in compromising situations. Um, so there's this kind of tension between being a young woman wanting to work in an industry, wanting to kind of prove your worth and your talents um, and your potential, and then also just being judged sexually, right? And being treated as, you know, somebody, something fun and pretty, right? Um, so that's something that I think, you know, a lot of women encounter. And I was kind of reminded of all that when the Weinstein allegations came out. So I, I basically decided to write complicit from the viewpoint of a young woman who's working for a wine scene type character but then the whole story is told from her perspective 10 years later when she's being pursued by a new york times journalist um who wants her story but for you know for his own series of articles but you know she herself you know is forced to kind of confront what she how she behaved back in the time back in the day 10 years ago on if she was complicit in abuses that that Watson type character was potentially subjecting other young women to, or if she herself was a victim of abuse in some way. So that's something that gets kind of revealed throughout the course of the novel. Um, but how that ties my PhD research is I just kind of was very conscious of the fact that, especially when all the Weinstein allegations were coming out and hashtag Me Too was sort of dominating headlines, you know, it, it was only a certain sector type of young woman whose stories we were hearing, right? And that's obviously it was Hollywood, so it was predominantly attractive young women who are trying to work in that industry um but there's you know sexual violence is something that's experienced by the whole broad range of our demographics and yet we often don't hear stories of women who are sex workers or who are illegal immigrants or who are disabled who in some ways are in much more vulnerable positions in society but their stories of victimhood are often judged in much different ways and not given that same kind of platform um, so yeah, I was just kind of conscious of all of that and trying to figure out how I can embody that in writing the novel. Not so much, you know, the novel's still very focused on the film industry, but the main character is, is Chinese American. And so she's working in a white dominated industry. I mean, I suppose any industry in the West is, um, so she's also judged and perceived differently because of her race. Um, and then in my PhD research, um, it's probably a bit more about class, Although race does play into it as well, because I've interviewed a number of different rape survivors who are active in the media, and I'm kind of looking at what was their journey to sharing their story publicly um, with media, but what was their interaction with newspapers and TV, you know, TV broadcasters, broadcasters, and all these different media platforms that kind of are sort of taking your own personal trauma and using it as content. Mm. Um, and how you negotiate with that and how you allow that to happen. But it's actually a bit more agentic than that because most of these women had been working towards wanting to be public in some way or another. So it was sort of a deliberate decision to work with these media platforms. And yet there was, there was constantly this negotiation behind the scenes in terms of the headlines that are put out there in terms of the images, the visual image of yourself that's put out there um yeah and that's that media work is also rarely compensated financially right um because even though it's it's incredibly grueling and like emotionally demanding to be doing that to be sharing your story of your own rape you know on television but that's you know that's not recognized as, as labor in its own way um so that those are all kinds of things i'm looking at and then you know whether or not you get compensated largely affects the class of the person that's allowed to be doing that work continuously because if you don't have to worry about earning an income then sure you can do that but if you do have to worry about doing an income about earning an income then you can't always be making yourself available for you know for media gigs that don't pay I mean in terms of kind of sharing stories and how 
emotionally difficult that is. How has writing complicit helped you heal from a, that traumatic event when you were younger? So, I mean, that's probably more apt, a more apt question for my first novel, Dark Chapter, which is kind of a, a, a fictional reimagining of my real life rape stranger rape but it's seen equally from the point of view of the victim and the perpetrator and my perpetrator was a 15 year old boy when i was 29 so there was a very bizarre kind of age difference um and yeah he was incredibly violent um so that um book i i often say i had to heal before i was able to write that book um because uh, i don't recommend writing a novel as a form of recovery <laughs> from sexual violence writing can certainly be a form of recovery but writing a novel for public consumption is a very different thing um but yeah, so I, I often stress that like my recovery wasn't tied to writing the book. I had to recover first and then write the book. And then when it came to complicit, you know, I, I had already just written this this incredibly raw novel about my own rape. And then with complicit, I'm like, okay, I, I don't I almost didn't want to write about the wine scene stuff because, you know, I just I'd already spent years of my life working on sexual violence um with Dark Chapter and also with the other work I do. Um, but um my agents at the time were like oh but you're really well placed to write about it so for me it was um how do I write about this in a way that's enjoyable for me as an individual and that meant kind of really writing more about the film industry and how films get made and kind of um reliving that glamorous but pretty crazy work environment um and so trying to capture kind of the excitement that a young woman might have but seen through her kind of more jaded, more cynical perspective as an older woman, looking back on how she behaved at the time. Um, so I think for me, again, that wasn't, I wouldn't say anything specifically had to deal with recovery, but it was, it did give me a different perspective or really lean into kind of an older perspective on the sort of challenges I faced working as a young woman in the film industry. Mm. And Winnie, what is kind of coming next for you over the next couple of years? Oh, well, I mean, the next six months less, I got to finish my PhD. So um, I started it in 2015. I mean, and it's what, 2023 now. So it's, I mean, it's a bit crazy because I started the PhD when I was trying to launch my career as a novelist. But, you know, I mean, as with anything in the arts, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a very stable career path, right? So I was kind of like, the PhD was like the backup, like, okay, well, in case the novel writing doesn't work out, I'll also do this PhD. And then I can kind of try to pursue a more academic career. Um, but in the meantime, the novel running did kind of work out. Um, so I'm still stuck doing the PhD, um, which is interesting for me, but it's a very different um, form of writing. Um, I'm at the London School of Economics um, and my department's very, it's very social sciences and I'm more of an arts and humanities person, but it's okay. Um, so I got to finish a PhD um, in the next few months. And then my third novel comes out probably spring summer 2025 and I've done two drafts of it and my editors are kind of happy with the direction it's going in so I just kind of need to finish that and get it to a shape that's publishable um probably by spring of 2024 so that's called uh actually we don't have a, a title yet it was tentatively called mother road and that's about um, three estranged adult siblings who have to go on a road trip together across America to see their ailing mother in California. Um, but they're they're in their 40s and they've kind of grown in very different ways. They've grown apart kind of politically and economically as well. Um, and they're Chinese Americans. So um, crossing kind of what's Trump territory in a post-COVID society when you're Chinese American kind of 
throws up a lot of questions about how you're um, perceived and if you're American enough and if you feel safe enough actually in your own country. So um, that is what my third novel is about. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Winnie, for joining us today. I always ask my guests one final question, which is, uh, what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist, either for yourself or for those around you? Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> what am I doing every day in a small way to become a better feminist? Um, I mean, I'm a mother now, which is something that I wasn't ever sure was going to happen. Um, so I think I've got three, almost four year old. And so I think I think every day I'm living motherhood. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think in my 20s, I, I, I never even thought about motherhood. And I was probably not hugely compassionate towards mothers or you know, I got my own mother issues, right? But I was, I, I just never really fully understood the, um, on one hand, the burden, but also the joy, but also just the huge amount of resource that goes on towards raising a child um, and how, yeah, it is really difficult to also have a career on top of that and to kind of have the energy to kind of protect your own professional interests in some ways. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, in a small way, I, you know, I'm, I'm being a mother every day and I'm kind of conscious of certainly the sacrifices that our own mothers had and our, the women that came before us and also just conscious of the fact that, you know, there's so many things that our own society can do to support uh, structurally, you know, women's careers um, while they're also mothers. So we don't lose that talent. We don't lose that potential that women can bring to our workplaces and our, and our the, you know, the wider world. Um, so I guess maybe that's that like a, a kind of everyday consciousness of um, what women often give up and how, you know, in becoming mothers and how we also need to kind of retain some awareness and some um, ambition of our own professionally um because i think you know we learn so much when we become mothers that that can then be applied towards workplaces and then oftentimes we don't have the opportunity to do that Mm. that's a great answer well thank you so much winnie for um joining us today yeah thanks so much alex